Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, we and almost everybody in the tax world have been talking about Biden's Made in America tax plan these last few weeks. And trust me, we've got a lot more to say about it in the coming episodes. But it's worth remembering, the Made in America tax plan is just one side of the equation, and we shouldn't lose sight of the other. What I'm talking about is Biden's American Jobs Plan. You know, the thing that the tax plan is supposed to pay for. I get it. It has been easy to forget about that component, including its important tax pieces, what with all the tax news in recent weeks and all. But a few weeks ago, I promised you we would explore this side of the Biden plan, and today we will. So to talk about the American Jobs Plan today, we've got our old friends with us, Jennifer Gray and Carol Coolish. So looking forward to this discussion. And Carol, let me start with you. American Jobs Plan, this is an important part of what President Biden has laid out as part of his Build Back Better plan. So can you just remind us what is in the American Jobs Plan overall? We'll get to the tax stuff in a minute, but just big picture, what's in there? The Americans Job Plan, broadly speaking, is a very large infrastructure package, with infrastructure being broadly defined. It's basically a $2.7 trillion spending bill over eight years, and that $2.7 includes about $400 billion of tax incentives. And the infrastructure is divided into four buckets. The first bucket is transportation infrastructure, things like roads, railways, bridges, transit, airports, ports, also got waterways, electric vehicles, vehicle stations, and some other things. The second bucket is infrastructure relating to what the administration describes as how we live at home, clean water, broadband, upgrading and reorienting the power infrastructure, repairs of schools, community colleges, childcare facilities, the VA hospital system, things of that nature. The third bucket is care infrastructure, which a lot of details aren't spelled out, but it's basically something the administration's intending to do to address the fact that with an aging population, there are not enough care facilities and caregivers. So you could have people having to leave the workforce to have to care for ailing family members. So it's putting money somehow into helping caregivers, providing incentives for people to stay at home and to get care. And that's one's largely left to be flushed out by Congress. And the fourth big bucket is R&D, things like clean energy R&D, incentives for domestic production in certain areas, workforce training and apprenticeships. So again, very broad definition of infrastructure that goes beyond just transportation. That sounds very ambitious. Carol, let me ask you a question. And maybe there's no answer to this, but let me ask you anyway. So I think back to the last time that I recall doing a similar kind of major infrastructure bill. To me, 2009 leaps to mind, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. We can all remember the phrase shovel-ready jobs and all that sort of thing. That was really, I believe, pitched as and designed as a stimulus kind of bill, keeping in mind we were in the throes of the financial crisis then. Do you think that the Biden administration is thinking of this as stimulus per se, or is this just saying we need investment infrastructure? It's long overdue. We're not necessarily selling this as stimulus. We're selling this as and and proposing it because this is overdue investment that just simply needs to get done. You know, I think it's a little bit of both, John. I think to some extent it's 
stimulating jobs. It is called the American Jobs Plan. It's trying to create jobs, even though the economy is starting to recover. I think it's trying to create a variety of jobs. You know, there's changes in which, you know, there may be some industries that are kind of waning and not doing well and looking to where future jobs may lie and trying to help stimulate the economy in that regard. But I think there's also a huge investment in our future component that trying to improve our infrastructure promotes competitiveness with China, with other countries. It helps businesses move goods. We need to have ports in good shape, waterways in good shape, broadband in order to grow. So I think it's sort of a combination of stimulus and investment, but I think there is a big investment component to it. Well, it's an interesting question to me anyway. I mean, like jobs thing, I get it. But, you know, if you were to go back and do a word search of congressional legislation, what percentage of bills introduced have the word jobs in it? But I do think it is, to a certain extent, something that would clearly this amount of investment infrastructure have an effect on the jobs market. That's, I think, easy to understand. But it's also an interesting question, you know, if, if this is going to be pushed as a stimulus bill with recent news that the economy is improving dramatically, does the administration really want to call it a stimulus bill if the economy is doing well versus just say, hey, this is deferred investment, deferred for too long that simply needs to get done. And I think you're right, Carol, it's a little bit of both. And it actually gives them the flexibility to pivot either way, depending on how things go. All right. Well, that's super helpful to orient us on what's in the plan overall. But Jennifer, let me turn to you. Let's talk about the tax piece. This is a tax podcast after all. So Carol mentioned there are important components that involve tax in this. Do you want to just remind us what those provisions are? Well, sure. And as Carol pointed out, the bill and the idea are pretty broad ranging. So some of the tax portions are as well. I just want to point out briefly that what is in this portion of the overall idea of an infrastructure bill is focused more on the good stuff, the credits and the like. The tax increases we've talked about on a prior podcast that deal more with the uh, how do you pay for this. So this is mainly the positive thing. So you see a lot of tax incentives, particularly focused on energy and environmental issues. So credits and incentives related to American-made electric vehicles, high-voltage power lines, carbon capture projects. So a lot of things in that area. You also see some focus on housing, some tax credits for affordable energy-efficient housing and new and rehabilitated homes for underserved communities. And then just a, a few hodgepodge of other things, expanding the advanced manufacturing tax credits, some credits for employer-provided childcare facility construction, and another idea that's relatively new, or at least I haven't seen before, this idea of tax credits to help small businesses and families prepare for disaster issues. So they call it disaster resilience tax credits. So just a number of issues there, but again, you know, at least in this portion of the overall idea and plan, really focusing a lot on tax credits and tax incentives to help folks achieve certain goals. Yeah, there's a lot in there, and you described a lot of things, some of which we've seen before. I mean, we already have an electric vehicles credit. You know, a lot of things you talked about exist already, but some are new. Like the, I think you described it as the electric transmission, like a grid tax credit. That's new, and I think it's designed to address the fact that you know it's viewed by many that the U.S.'s electric grid is outdated and aging. We've seen evidence of that at various points through the course of the year. So it's really interesting. And there's also some interesting new design features in some of these things. So, for example, converting some of these tax credits to direct pay mechanisms. The traditional general business credit is a really novel approach to some of the ideas that they're talking about in these tax provisions. It's coming back to it then, Jennifer Carroll said this is a $2.7 trillion bill. So the things that you described are $400 
billion, right, with the 2.3 of spending to get to the 2.7. Am I thinking about the math correctly here? That's our understanding of how the math works. Uh, we haven't seen detailed breakdowns of the various tax increases and tax cuts and spending and the like, but that's our understanding of how the numbers work out. Yeah, it's a little confusing because in various places it's described as spending $2.3 trillion. And I think what that means is there's specific spending and we're netting the tax benefits you described against the tax increases. So we're, it's almost like those are being netted out against each other. But our understanding is we're talking about 2.3 of spending plus 400 billion and those provisions you just outlined, Jennifer, to get to a total bill of 2.7. Okay. All right, Carol, then since we're just talking about the numbers, so remind us again, how is the administration, how is President Biden proposing to pay for this? Is he proposing we pay for it? And how? Yeah, he is proposing that it be paid for. He's proposing that the $2.7 trillion, as you were saying, of direct spending as well as tax incentives, the $2.7 trillion figure is over eight years. He's proposing that that would be offset over 15 years by tax law changes that would be permanent. So there's not a perfect match in timing, but from being able to describe the plan to people, I think the administration is, is saying that in the long term, the plan would be fully paid for by tax law changes. And the tax law changes that are discussed, Jennifer mentioned it, it's the Made in America tax plan. I know there have been previous podcasts on that, but that's the companion piece that includes things like major changes to the corporate and international taxation, increasing the corporate rate, major changes in the the international area, repealing fossil fuel incentives. But I won't go into that in depth because I know we've talked about that on other webcasts. But the notion is they would pay for eight years worth of spending would be offset by tax law changes over 15 years. Okay, so a couple of important things to unpack there. So first of all, the thing you said, yes, we're going to pay for it. The Made in America tax plan is the pay for. That's the tax increases on the corporate side of the ledger, right, Carol? Not the things we've talked about that were in the Biden campaign plan that also taxed wealthy individuals. That's coming later. Do I have that right? Yes, that's coming in the coming weeks, which could be coming up pretty soon, given the plan was released March 31. I mean, we may see something in the next week, two or three. We'll see, but should be soon. Okay, so stay tuned for a certainly having a podcast episode on that proposal on the individual side when it comes out. So another point then, which is a really interesting one. So the $2.7 trillion, or you know, at least the spending aspect, let's just talk about the 2.3 in spending for the moment. That is intended to be spent in the first eight years after enactment. But the pay for is going to be over a 15-year period. And it's interesting in both cases because neither one seems to use the normal 10-year scoring convention that Washington has adopted. Both the Joint Committee of Taxation and the Congressional Budget Office typically work off of a 10-year window. So we've got eight on the spend, 15 on the pay for. So if, am I understanding this correctly that, Carol, when this gets scored, which it will by CBO and Joint Committee of Taxation, based on what you described, a deficit in the first decade. In, in other words, we won't have fully paid for this in the 10-year budget window, right? Because we're going to pay for it over 15. Am I thinking of that correctly? Yeah, that seems to be what they're describing, that there would be an increase in the deficit over the traditional 10-year budget window. But in the long term, outside the window, you would offset that. And then the investment would have some benefit, but also the tax code changes would be permanent, the raisers. So you'd actually, even beyond the 15 years, assuming no other changes in the tax law, you would actually raise some money in the long term. 
Right. So before you might think, oh, this is a budgetary sleight of hand. They don't really intend to pay for it. No, not in the 10-year window. But remember, the spending is temporary. The tax increases are permanent. So whether this thing pays for itself in 15 years or 20 years or whatever, it will not only pay for itself, but I think it's been projected by outside economists to reduce the deficit in the long term. Now, that's, there's lots of assumptions in that in terms of do they really raise the taxes that they say that they do? Will they really sunset the spending that they're talking about? But specifically what they're saying, yes, it will over time pay for itself and probably even go beyond at some point over a long time, just not in the traditional 10-year congressional budget window. Right. And there's probably even some macroeconomic benefit contemplated in that the types of investments in infrastructure, broadband, power, things of that nature, I think it's contemplated that that would help grow the overall economy. Yep. Yep. We talked about that in a prior episode in terms of, you know, we talked a lot about dynamic scoring in the tax world, but not so much in the spending world. And in this case, the spending potentially has a favorable macroeconomic effect, at least over in the short term. Jennifer. So, okay. Now, Carol has reminded us we're going to have to pay for this with these tax increases. You know, they're going to run into some opposition. Who knows to what extent they'll get these enacted. I'm just wondering, is it absolutely essential to couple these things together? The America Jobs Plan with the Made in America tax plan, do they have to get glued together at some point? Or could they theoretically, and we've heard people hint about this as maybe doing multiple bills, could we do one first and then another one separately? Just talk about how, not only procedurally, but I guess politically, these things might move. So it's not essential that they move them together or apart. Procedurally, they could be separate. There would probably be some additional budgetary steps that would need to happen for that to work. But I think the real question is politically and whether those two plans go together or separately. It appears that the administration is contemplating them moving together as they were released together. And there are some references, particularly within the American Jobs Plan, that references the tax plan together. So I think the American Jobs Plan alone, that would increase the deficit between two and three trillion dollars. And folks voting for that would need to be comfortable with that deficit level in order to vote for that alone. And likewise, I think folks would need to be comfortable with supporting two to three trillion dollars in tax increases in order to vote for the tax plan alone. So, you know, I think if you combine the two, obviously you still have the political question of supporters being comfortable with the tax increases, but, you know, the question of the deficit is negated, at least to some degree, assuming that there's near offsets or, or close to near offsets there. So I think the best guess of most folks is that they move together through reconciliation at the end of the day. But, you know, as I said, it's not required. They could do it separately. So I think time will tell. I guess you're right. It's, it's saying it pays for itself. You could make that claim whether you pass these in the same bill or separately. I mean, it's it's cleaner, right? If they're in the same bill and you can see the revenue table and it nets to, as we said, it won't net to zero, but it nets down to a relatively small number. But, you know, there's also this talk that, hey, maybe we could get Republicans to support the spending side of it. And we move that under regular order with 60 votes. And then later we do reconciliation to do the tax increases that Republicans might not support. There's some skeptics that that would actually work. What's your view on whether or not that's a, a strategy they might pursue? It's certainly something to be discussed. Personally, I doubt that that works. The understanding by most folks is that there would be one bill followed by a second bill. I think folks are making their decision on how to vote for either bill would have in mind that there may be a second one coming and that might influence their decision on how to vote on an individual bill. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's one of those things that somebody somewhere thought sounded smart, but when you think about how that actually plays out, it's kind of hard to see that working. Carol, Jennifer talked a little bit about the rules of reconciliation, and we talked also about this eight-year spend, 15-year pay-for. How do those fit into the straitjacket budgetary rules of budget reconciliation? Are they going to work or not work? Let me go back for a second and just add one thought to the previous question before I address that. Please. And that's just when you talk about how things are going to get packaged together. Let me all just, just throw in the, the whole question that, again, nobody knows the answer to. Might the American Family Plan eventually hitch a ride on the infrastructure made in America type package as well? And the American Family Plan, again, is the proposal that is advertised as coming soon, where they would address potentially the individual tax changes along with things like childcare, healthcare, things of that nature. So there's other issues of packaging also, I just wanted to remind people of. Excellent point. Well, no, but it's, it's, look, it's just a reminder, how many moving pieces we have, right? So you could do the American Jobs Plan and the Mannequin America Tax Plan. You could move those together or separately. You could do the American Family Plan and the American Jobs Plan together with the Made in America Tax Plan plus the tax increase. Look, you've got all these moving parts, and it's going to be highly complex, but I'm sure there are smart people on the Hill trying to figure out what sequence, what combinations of these are most likely for Democrats to provide the outcome that they're looking to do, which is get them all enacted. Yeah, again, going to the politics there, I think there's an effort right now being made to see if they can reach bipartisan agreement on any chunk of things. But I'm in the skeptical camp of that because either you're going to increase the deficit or you're going to have offsets. And there's going to be some Republicans who are very concerned with increasing the deficit, other Republicans who are concerned with what the offsets may be. Even if you move to things that have been discussed before, like user fees, those have issues that raise concerns to some as well. So I do think that right now we're working on this. Is there a way to get bipartisanship? If it does become clear that they can't move on a bipartisan basis, then they have the political issue of how do Democrats want to move this if it's just going to be a Democrat process, which I think leads to your question about, okay, if it does end up being a partisan effort, they can't get 60 votes in the Senate. They end up using budget reconciliation to move it through the Senate, potentially with only Democratic support. You had asked how the rules of reconciliation mesh with the eight-year spend and the 15-year pay-for, just looking at the numbers. And the numbers, you can make this stuff work fine within reconciliation. That's not, in my view, one of the big issues with reconciliation. Because remember, with budget reconciliation, when you use that process, the House and Senate agree on a target number by which you get to increase the deficit over the 10-year budget window. So we've talked about earlier in this podcast, the fact that the administration, its proposal is contemplating an increase in the deficit over 10 years. So you quantify that and you say, okay, we get to increase the deficit by this amount over 10 years. Committees can go forth and figure out how they're going to spend that money to meet their various goals. In the out years under reconciliation, you can't increase the deficit in any of the out years. So they'll have to match things, but that should work. They should be able to do things because the revenue raisers, again, are permanent. So the tables will show the spending ending after eight, and then in years 10, 11, 12, you're going to have revenue raised from the raisers. So it's fine to decrease the deficit and to raise revenue outside the 10. What you can't do is increase the deficit, but the way they've set this up with the eight-year spend and 15-year pay-for with permanent tax raisers works. But there's other issues with reconciliation, but the, the numbers can be made to work. 
if we see this bill move forward, we'll be hearing about two different numbers. One is the technical deficit number that would likely be attached to the bill as written, that 10-year bill, and that will have a deficit number that will show up on all the joint committee charts and the CBO charts, et cetera. But then there'll be this discussion about saying it's revenue neutral or that the deficit's smaller. And Carol, that's exactly what you're talking about, sort of this unofficial number that takes into account this 15-year timeframe. And it's really the reverse of what Republicans were trying to do back in 2017. In many ways, the reconciliation rules are perfect for what Democrats are talking about, which is permanent tax increases paying for temporary spending. It's kind of no sweat. As you outlined it, Carol, that's what they stick to. The problem Republicans had in 2017 was trying to do permanent tax cuts with the shortest term or you know least painful tax increases to help offset it as possible. And that was harder. So Back to this whole eight years and 15 year numbers, it kind of works pretty nicely in terms of just the reconciliation rules, specifically in terms of how Democrats are going to pursue this when they get to it. Okay, so we got that part of reconciliation squared away, potentially. Do we have everything else in reconciliation squared away under this infrastructure proposal? We certainly don't. And getting things squared away through reconciliation is a difficult process and generally involves hours and hours of interacting and discussions with the parliamentarian, et cetera. So until that process is moved forward, we won't know the definitive answers on a lot of these issues. But there are some questions on what some of the ideas put forward, whether or not they could qualify to be moved under reconciliation, whether they would meet the various reconciliation requirements. We saw this a bit with the reconciliation bill in March, that there were some provisions in that, like the minimum wage and some spending items as well, that were ruled by the parliamentarian to not be eligible to be moved through the reconciliation process. So I think we will see some things like that as well. Certainly, there were some issues dealing with some union issues that I think will be discussed on whether or not those can be moved under reconciliation There's some question if any earmarks are in here. Those could potentially be some matters. And then the tax side, there could be some questions there. Sometimes if it's a very new idea or a new proposal or it's too particular or it's seen as an actual policy change as opposed to something to be done for budgetary purposes, those items can come into problems with the parliamentarian as well. So, for example, the 2.3 in direct spend Might it be problematic for Congress to direct how that money is spent in reconciliation? Like, would that language itself have budgetary effect? Is that one of the things that they'll be looking at? Again, it totally depends on how it is written and what exactly the intent is and what the parliamentarian um, divines the intent to be. So certainly a lot of the spending is going to be fine, no problem at all. It's almost that the more particular they get on some of these spending items and the more directed it is, perhaps those items may be more likely to see some more scrutiny from the parliamentarian. The rules of reconciliation always seem to make these things more difficult than anybody ever expects. But again, it's worth a reminder that as Republicans found in 2017 and Democrats are likely to find this year, as difficult and as challenging and as limiting as they can be, it's better than doing nothing. So I suspect we're going to hear a lot more about how these things play out and we're going to hear a lot more from the Senate parliamentarian as these things get fleshed out. Well, that's all we have time for today. So thank you, Carol and Jennifer. As we discuss the American Jobs Plan today, one thing sort of stands out to me, and that's the political dynamic. You might think that corporate America would generally dislike this package, mostly for the pay-fors and tax increases contained in the Made in America tax plan. And sure, raising taxes on corporations by $2 trillion is something that many, maybe even most, corporations won't like. But here's the thing. 
In spending $2.7 trillion, this package obviously isn't all bad news to all people. Yes, there could be losers, but there are definitely winners in here too. The renewable energy sector, the housing sector, several others might benefit directly. And anyone in the construction or engineering sector could be a net winner through all of that spend, even though their taxes may be going up. And sometimes that's just enough to blunt the political criticism of a bill by getting a group of high profile and vocal supporters of the legislation to balance out those who might be opposed. This legislative divide and conquer strategy is as old as legislation itself, I imagine. And the reason it's been around so long is, well, it often works. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, comments, and suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.